Morning, Bethel. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 through chapter 3, verse 6. The word of the Lord to us this morning. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Good morning again, Bethel. It's good to be back with you all. Hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. We did. So we got back last night from visiting my mom and sisters. All right, so do you have any powerful fragrance associations? Um... I do. A few of them, but one with lilies. Uh, lilies smell like death to me. Anybody else feel that way? Maybe okay, I'm the only one. All right, well, at least you can imagine how it might be to be me. Um, so I don't particularly like their smell on their own, but I've, I think also I've smelled way too many of these flowers in funeral homes. And so there's this association of death. But lily of the valley actually smells like beauty and glory to me. Like, I love the smell of lily of the valley. Totally different flower. I'm not a flower buff, but just trying to... Okay, anyway, um, but I can actually imagine how it might be the exact opposite for somebody else. Some people might love the smell of lilies, and maybe since Lily of the Valley apparently is poisonous to cats and dogs, maybe your dog died because it ate some Lily of the Valley, and you've got this terrible association with Lily of the Valley. So we can have powerful memories and associations with certain smells. It can be really good memories or really painful, terrible memories. Um, I think we can all imagine that the very same brand of perfume or aftershave could have wonderful or horrible 
associations. Same product, two different people. So the same fragrance can be the smell of life to one person, the smell of death, stench of death to another. So that phenomenon doesn't matter much when it comes to preferences over flowers. It can matter a whole lot when it comes to the wonderful or the terrible associations people may have with certain fragrances and the memories that they evoke, but it matters immensely, in fact, infinitely, when it comes to the aroma or the fragrance of Christ. So that's actually at the center of our passage for this morning. So let's dive into 2 Corinthians 2, Tyler already read it, um, verse 12, chapter 2, 12, verse through verse um, 6 of chapter 3, and we're going to see how and why um, the aroma, the fragrance of Christ matters infinitely. So first, um, look with me at 2.12 to 13. This is the first point in the outline. Uh, the weakness of love. Notice that's in quotes. Um, the weakness of love. So Paul writes here in verses 12 and 13, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord... My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So if you haven't been here, we started a series on 2 Corinthians a few weeks ago. And if you haven't been here, you might hear that and go, what in the world is going on? Why are we looking at this? And what does this mean? Well, the background is totally vital to understanding um, this book, and certainly this section. Um, so we're going to have to talk about background repeatedly um, through the series, particularly in these first couple chapters, and then again, chapter 6 and 7. Um, part of the reason for that is it's so vital to understanding what's going on, but also this background might not be as familiar um, for us all, and you have to understand what, what Paul's um, what's going on in their relationship, he and the, and the church in Corinth, if you're going to understand what's going on. So hopefully these background explanations don't just serve you on a particular Sunday, but in the future as you turn to 2 Corinthians to glean the grace and the truth on your own in your own reading. So quick review here. If you read Acts 18, Paul spent a year and a half in the Roman city of Corinth planting the church. He then left and he wrote... 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. He intended to visit them. He says this in chapter 16 um, after he had traveled through Macedonia. So in the meantime, he sends Timothy when Timothy gets there. So if you read 1 Corinthians, you know there's, they've got some issues. The Corinthian church got some issues. Paul wrote to address some of those, and then he sends Timothy before he comes to visit, and Timothy gets there and whoa, things are in bad shape. So some false apostles had crept in. They were leading the church astray. This rebellion against Paul's leadership was brewing, okay, like an opposition party arising, kind of gaining some traction. So Paul is like their spiritual father. And so he just drops everything and he goes to visit them. And it turns out to be a really painful visit. Okay, Paul was attacked kind of viciously by some who had gained influence, and there's this distrust and suspicion of his leadership. So if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, again, we, we actually went through that at the beginning of, of the year. 
um, you can imagine how this traction happened in the church in Corinth. The church was shaped way too much by the world's values. Okay? Power and prestige and accomplishment and wealth was impressive to them. It was desirable to them. So the way of the cross was more foreign, and they needed the cross to be at the center, shaping who they were. So humility and sacrifice and self-giving and love was not esteemed by them like it needed to, to be. So that's why when we walk through 1 Corinthians, we call that series Cruciform Living, life shaped by the cross, in the shape of the cross, in the footsteps of our crucified Savior. So now these false apostles have crept in, and they're like boasting of their resumes, and maybe they were, really, they were probably really impressive speakers, persuasive orators, okay? They appeared powerful and influential, and they criticized Paul for being weak and unimpressive. In fact, one of the central ways that they sought to undermine Paul's credibility was to say that he suffered too much. He's just so weak. How could a spirit-filled apostle suffer so much? So, you know, affliction, suffering, illness in the ancient world was often viewed as a sign of God's displeasure, divine displeasure. One of the gods is unhappy with you. Kind of like Job's friends, theology. So you can just imagine these guys, you know, sowing these seeds of suspicion, undermining Paul among the Corinthian church, saying, how can he be a powerful, spirit-filled apostle when he suffers so much? I mean, maybe he's getting what he deserves. So when Paul arrived, this opposition against him was strong, and instead of judging them on the spot, he withdraws. He went back to Ephesus, and he writes them a letter. It's a strong letter, a call to repentance, but it's a tear-filled letter. Like the paper, you can imagine, was just soaked with his tears because he's so broken over what's going on in this church that he planted. He sent Titus to the church in Corinth bearing the letter, so look at chapter 2, verse 4. Tyler preached on this last week. He unpacked it so well last week. If you missed it, I'd encourage you to go online and listen. <clears throat> For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So Paul had to defend his ministry. He had to call them to repentance he wasn't doing this defense of his ministry, and he's not doing it here in 2 Corinthians in order to defend his own name. He's not firing back at them because of a bruised ego. He's responding with their well-being in mind. Okay, So if the Corinthians draw back from Paul, follow these false apostles, they're going to be drawing back from Jesus and not following him any longer. And Paul loves them too much to let that happen. So in defending himself, explaining himself to them, and calling them back to himself, he's really calling them back to Christ. So he's defending his suffering, his cruciform ministry, and he's calling them to actually walk in his cruciform footsteps. So look again at verses 12 and 13. With that background in mind, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, this is after he sent that tearful letter with Titus, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. In other words, he hadn't come back to me yet to give me word about how you responded. Like, are they going to 
Are they going to just scoff at the letter and just completely reject me and Jesus following of you know, false teachers? Or are they going to repent and respond? Paul was so anxious about the welfare of the Corinthians that he actually left this open door to ministry. You can imagine how hard that would be for Paul. This is his life. But he leaves it behind because he's got he's to meet up with Titus sooner. He's got to find out how the Corinthians are doing. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now flip ahead to chapter 7. And you can see what happened when he met up with Titus. Look at verse 5 of chapter 7. So remember, this open door, he came to Troas, open door, but he, he wasn't at rest in his spirit, so he left and went to Macedonia. 2 Corinthians 7, 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. He was afraid of what he might find when Titus returned. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Okay? So he's so happy to hear from Titus that they responded. And he's comforted by that response. So back to 2, 12, and 13. He turned his back on that meaningful ministry opportunity in order to meet up with Titus and find out sooner how the Corinthian church had responded. So was that anxiety that concern for the Corinthians, a display of weakness? No, it was love. So here the Corinthians are listening to these false apostles undermine Paul. He's a vacillator. He changes his mind, you know, about his travel plans. No, 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 I changed my plans because of you. I changed my plans because I was so concerned about you. Because I love you. So was it weakness? No, it was love. Except that actually it was a sort of weakness. Flip ahead to chapter 11. If you're familiar with this book, one of the sections that, you know, maybe many of us are familiar with is this list of Paul's sufferings. You know, he's got beaten with rods and shipwrecked and all this stuff. And then the apex of this list of his sufferings, like the height of it, in verse 28, apart from these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And then look what he says next. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to stumble and fall and I'm not indignant? It kills me. When my people, those that I've ministered to, are tripping up, I get weak when they are weak and not strong and stable. 
So real Christ-like maturity is not some stoic or clinical detachment from people. You know, you can serve them, but then you can just step back and it just never messes with you more than you want it to. You can just keep service in this nice, neat little compartment. But, you know, your feathers never get ruffled. It never really messes with your life too much. You just kind of keep it, you know, wherever you want it, just right here. I'm just going to box it up here. Not going to bother me too much. No, that's not maturity. Paul's peace of mind is actually bound up in the spiritual well-being of the people he ministered to. Is that weakness? Well, it's the willingly chosen weakness of love is what it is. So I think we see it oftentimes in a parent whose child is wayward. Some of you know this by firsthand experience. It's not maturity for a parent to be distant and detached from a wayward child as if, eh, we wouldn't view that as maturity, as love. No, that child's well-being keeps the parent up at night. They might fast and pray once a week for that child, like willingly suffering because they long for that child to be stable and trusting Jesus and following him. So concerned about the trajectory that that child's on. That's love, not weakness. So Paul's an example for us here. This is a call to follow Jesus who himself willingly became weak to bear our weaknesses, to bear our burdens. So this is cruciform ministry that willingly embodies the weakness, quote-unquote, of love. Another example, just application of this quote-unquote weakness of love. Have you ever sought to love someone who is suffering and found that at times, especially if there's profound suffering, that they're taking out some of their pain on you? Has this ever happened to you? Even though you're not the one that caused it? Of course that happens, okay? Now, if you get offended at that moment and fire back at the sufferer, is that strength? Is that a show of strength? No, it's actually weakness. The greater display of strength, the strength of love, is to be like a shock absorber in those times, to take some of their pain, of course. And when you do, it means that you're strong enough to know that their hurt is talking. And you're not going to take it personally. Try to set them straight. You're going to sit with them in the ash heap. So imagine that one of these scenarios is going on. You're ministering to somebody like this who's suffering and... You catch some of that heat. And imagine someone looking on or listening in at a restaurant or coffee shop or something. You can imagine that they might look on and think that you're weak, that you can't stand up for yourself, that you're just allowing yourself to be some pathetic punching bag. And you could fear looking weak. Again, maybe this is an exaggeration for the sake of the point, but I think you can... 
imagine the situation. Maybe you can think of some situations in your own life that have some similarities here. But Christ-like love with the strength of soul and emotional metal that it requires means that you, you take it and roll with it. Because your first concern is not how you look, but how that sufferer is doing. So is there a time to confront and challenge? Of course, okay? But don't dismiss this point, or you will miss the point of what Paul is defending in his own ministry here, this weakness, quote-unquote, of love. It looks weak, but it's really strength. Now, that's point number one. Point number two starts in verse 14 here. Some look at this previous context and then look at verse 14 and just say, you can't get there from here. (laughs) What is the connection? But actually, the connection between 2.12 and 13 and 2.14 to follow and the verses that follow, is at the heart of why this book is so important. This is really huge. So, second point, dying to spread the message. Look at verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So do you see that phrase in verse 14 always leads us in triumphal procession? Understanding the significance of that phrase actually opens up the meaning to this whole section. So some people have interpreted it at times to mean something like victory in Jesus. Okay, you know, hey, verses 12 and 13, despite the trouble that we went through, you know, you all came around, Titus brought the good news, so woohoo, victory in Jesus. Now, that's a true sentiment to a degree, okay? But it's not the point here. The word that's translated triumphal procession is a reference to something that happened in the first century that everybody who read this letter would have known about, a Roman triumphal procession. Okay, it was a cultural phenomenon in Paul's day, a military parade, basically. So for us, if I say Macy's Day Parade, you have pictures in your mind. You have associations, you know, floating balloons and, you know, bands playing and commentators that just go on and on and on and all this, right? Maybe you watched it on Thursday. Well, Roman triumph had all kinds of associations in the minds of a first century reader. These are some of the associations. Ancient Rome, obviously military powerhouse. The Roman Empire spread over a huge um, area. When they conquered another kingdom, there was a huge parade to display the glory of Rome and her gods. So the general, the victorious general, would get kind of dressed up like a god and get carried like on a litter or some chariot sort of thing, carried through the streets. Everyone would turn out for these things, line the way, just like, you know, Macy's Day Parade. There would be murals painted, huge murals painted of key battle scenes so that 
Everyone back home could see the glory of Rome. Okay, see how they won the battle. The soldiers would march victorious through the streets. Just think ticker tape and flowers and everything, the whole nine yards. It, it really, I don't, not the ticker tape, but, you know, the whole nine yards. They, they pulled out all the stops for this. And then there were the prisoners of war. What they would do is they would take some of the biggest and strongest soldiers who were not killed on the battlefield, and they would parade them through the streets. So it made the victory that much more impressive to see these tough fighters subjugated under the mighty hand of Rome. So the whole thing was intended to put on display the glory of the gods. The Roman gods were the most powerful, right? A victory by the Roman army was a victory for their gods. And then at the end of the parade, guess what happened? There was a sacrifice. You did not want to be led in a triumphal procession as a prisoner of war because it either meant you got sold to slavery if you were lucky. It usually meant you got sacrificed to the gods at the end. So, shocker, Paul says that he's led in triumphal procession. Wait a second. If you get led in a triumphal procession, it means you get led to your death. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. <laughs> what? This doesn't mean Paul's the victorious general, you know, leading the spiritual battle. He's picturing himself as a prisoner of war being led to his death, and he's thanking God for it. What? Like, so do you see what Paul is saying? Connecting any dots here? Here's what Paul is saying in summary. God conquered Paul on the Damascus road. He was a slave of, of God, right? Slave of Christ. He used that description a lot for himself. And he was, God was always leading Paul in triumphal procession to daily death. Paul died daily that others might live. He suffered that others might be comforted. Paul was a living sacrifice. And because of it, his life, his daily dying Life spread the fragrance of the one who died that we might live. So to get around Paul was to kind of catch the aroma of the sacri sacrifice of Christ. Jesus was led to die for our sins. He died that we might live. He suffered that we might be comforted. He became a slave that we might be set free. And Paul was following in Jesus' footsteps. This is cruciform ministry. So as a result, Paul's message, Christ crucified, and his manner of life, cruciform life, cruciform ministry, they were one and the same. He preached 
the gospel of Christ crucified, and he lived a cruciform life, dying daily to his own comfort and safety and reputation that others might find comfort in Christ and security in Christ and identity in Christ. So Paul's life, his suffering, his weakness, his loving life spread everywhere the fragrance, the aroma of the knowledge of Christ wherever he went. So Paul understood that this is how God works. This is how God spreads the glory of his son. So he says, thanks be to God. I'm willing. I don't kick against this suffering. I embrace it because I want more and more people to know this life that is truly life. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death. Those who are perishing. The life of Paul, the message of Paul is a stench. But to those who are being saved, it's a fragrance from life to life. So this living sacrifice is first and primarily pleasing to God. Do you see it there? We are the aroma of Christ to God. We want to please him with our lives. We are living sacrifice. And then it's either the smell of life or the smell of death to those that we minister to. And we cannot dictate or control their response. We can only be faithful to follow Jesus. To some, it's going to be life to life. To others, it's going to be death to death. Some are going to come alive to this message. We're going to be like the smelling salts of the world, Christians. To others, they're going to hate our message and our manner of life, and they're going to insult and malign us. We can't control the response. We're simply called to faithfully follow in the cruciform footsteps of our Savior with the message of the gospel and the manner of cruciform love. So have you experienced, if you're a Christian following Jesus, have you experienced both of these reactions? Don't think that if you get this death-to-death response that, oh, what did I do wrong? It may be that it's just because you're faithfully representing Jesus. Now, obviously, sometimes our personality gets in the way, and that's more the stumbling block than the gospel. And when that's the problem, we need to repent and you know, stop being a jerk and <laughs> represent Jesus with his love. But we can't dictate the response. But have you experienced both of those reactions? Smelling salt, seeing someone come alive through you loving them sacrificially and sharing the gospel with them? There's nothing better than that. Life to life. But also becoming a stench, it's going to happen. So Bob Dylan illustrates it so well. <laughs> how we can be a stench to some in his song, Property of Jesus. So listen to these words. They're pretty profound. Go ahead and talk about him because he makes you doubt, because he has denied himself the things that you can't live without. Laugh at him behind his back just like the others do. Remember him. Remember what he used to be when he comes walking through. He's the property of Jesus. Resent him to the bone. You got something better. You've got a heart of stone. 
Stop your conversation when he passes on the street. Hope he falls upon himself. Oh, won't that be sweet? Because he can't be exploited by superstition anymore, because he can't be bribed or bought by the things that you adore. You see how our very security in Christ can be threatening to other people. When the whip that's keeping you in line doesn't make him jump, say he's hard of hearing, say that he's a chump, say he's out of step with reality as you try to test his nerve because he doesn't pay tribute to the king that you serve, like mammon, money. Say that he's a loser because he got no common sense because he don't increase his worth at someone else's expense. He's the property of Jesus. Resent him to the bone. You've got something better. You've got a heart of stone. I'd encourage you to listen to it. It's better than hearing it read, but you get the idea. So life to life, death to death, we ought to expect both reactions. But notice something else here. This is an incredible combination of both strength and weakness. Like an, an incredible combination of strength and weakness is required here. So incredible strength of soul not to become a chameleon. Not to kind of put your finger to the wind and be what you need to be to succeed in every environment. But to simply follow Jesus no matter what the cost in each and every environment. Like if, you, if you're really committed to just faithfully following Jesus... I want to be as loving as possible. I don't want to unduly offend, but I know I can't take away the offense of the cross. And some people, are. this is going to be life to life. Others, it's going to be death to death. I just want to be faithful to Jesus. Do you see the strength that it takes to do that? Rather than, like, I, I just don't want anybody to be upset with me. If, if, you, if your goal is just to please everybody, you're not going to be able to follow Jesus very faithfully. You're not going to, be able to put your finger to the wind and just do what you need to succeed in every environment. It takes strength. And yet, incredible vulnerability and weakness to allow your well-being to be bound up in the well-being of others. To be so concerned with their well-being that it tears you up when they're not whole. Do you see how it's really laying your heart on the table, like to be crushed when you love people like this. Paul was so anxious for them. And I think oftentimes we just get it exactly backwards. We seek the opposite of this combination of strength and weakness. We put up strong defenses and boundaries so as not to allow others to hurt us or burden us too much. We've got the strength in the wrong place. And then we choose to be too weak to be who we really are. We try to please everyone. We fear the relational or the vocational impact of, of being out there with our faith. You see what I'm saying? So this is a kind of strength and weakness or vulnerability that is necessary. It's, it's oftentimes the opposite of what's natural to us. But this is what God is calling us to here. So God is saying, come and die. I'm going to lead you to your death. I'm going to lead you to suffer for the sake of loving other people. 
Living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2. So that your life spreads the aroma of Christ to those that, I've, that he's placed in our lives. So all this triumphal procession is intended to spread the glory of Jesus. It's how the knowledge of Christ and him crucified is spread. The word of the cross and the living sacrificial love, living sacrifice that Christians live out. Listen to Scott Haifman from his commentary on 2 Corinthians. Um, In our age of materialism, we find it almost impossible to fathom that God would not only use suffering as a vehicle for manifesting the presence and power of his spirit, but also actually lead someone to death for the sake of revealing his glory and spreading the gospel. Instead, we strive hard to give the impression that Christians overcome suffering and want rather than finding Christ strong in their very evident weakness. Though we don't express it overtly, deep down we are still convinced that if we just had enough faith, we should be able to beat or avoid the adversity around us. Is that how we deep down really feel? Like if I had enough faith, then I wouldn't suffer. No, wait, 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 wait. What if? What if God leads us right into suffering so that he can spread the aroma of Christ? So if we're going to follow Jesus, we can't try. We can't expect to save our life, to save our comfort. We can't avoid suffering. We can't avoid bearing other people's burdens. We can't avoid responsibility. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. And whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, Do you see how Paul is saying, this is just, this is how God does it. We ought to be dying to fill the world with the aroma of Christ. And I mean that in both senses. Don't you want the aroma of Christ to fill this world? Then we're going to have to die. We're going to need to suffer. So, you know, happy Sunday morning. How are you feeling about all this? Pretty overwhelmed, pretty inadequate, pretty weak. So living like this, dying that others might live, and, and not just that, like teeth gritted, okay, I'll try, like, or so embracing this way of life that you actually thank God that this is how he intends to spread the aroma of Christ. <sighs> That's overwhelming. Like, how in the world can we do this? Who's sufficient for these things? Well, If that's how you feel, perfect. (laughs) We are totally insufficient for this. But the grace of God is totally sufficient for this. So look at where Paul goes. Next and finally, point three, who is sufficient for these things? Look at the end of verse 16. That's exactly what Paul asks. Who's sufficient for these things? Now, what answer do you expect to see at the end of that sentence? Go ahead, yell it out. No one, right? That's actually not the answer that Paul is thinking of. 
He's actually intending the answer to be, we are. Remember, he's defending his ministry. So look at the sentence. Pay attention to it. Look at first, the end of verse 16 and the beginning of verse 17. Who's sufficient for these things? It doesn't make sense if you say no one. Because then he says, because we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but what he's really saying here is, who's sufficient for these things? We are. Because we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, like these false apostles you guys are listening to. They're opportunists. They're taking advantage of you to make a buck. We're men of sincerity as commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We're not hiding anything. We're just sincerely trying to love you all. So we're not selling the gospel. We're not shaping our message to make it more palatable. But Paul doesn't want them to think that he's boasting in saying, we are, you ought to follow me and my apostolic band and leave those false apostles in the dust. He doesn't want them to think he's boasting. So chapter 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Like you are proof that we, that I'm an apostle. You're written on my heart. Everybody can read how much I love you, my anxiety, my concern for you. You show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. But then he goes to the ultimate reason why he can say we are sufficient. It's because his sufficiency comes from God. So look at verses 4 to 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from, our, from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So are you feeling inadequate, insufficient, inadequate to share the gospel with a neighbor or coworker or family member or to maybe get, get out of your comfort zone and go on a missions trip or to serve at Urban Promise or serve at Sunday Breakfast Mission or to be a Door of Hope counselor or to be a foster parent or to teach a Sunday school class. Well, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can be at work in you to empower and enable you to make you competent and sufficient for every good work. Of course we're insufficient. But God is not insufficient. His grace is not insufficient. So listen to Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So how sweet is the sacrifice of Christ for us? The more that we like drink in the sweetness of that sacrifice, the more pleasing his sacrifice is to our soul's senses, the more we're going to be empowered to willingly walk in his footsteps and sacrificial 
love. We are called to be living sacrifices. Why do we always want to jump down off the altar? Why do we want to wiggle away from laying ourselves out as a living sacrifice? We fear dying daily because we fear death. We fear the death of our comfort, the death of our safety, the death of our reputation, of our success, of our relational belonging to this or that circle. And we also fear our final death, especially if all of our hopes and dreams and treasures are bound up here on earth. But what if we didn't have to fear death anymore? What if our eternal comfort is unkillable? What if our eternal safety is unshakable? What if God is justified and no one can ultimately condemn us? What if God is for us and no one can be against us? We can't even lose if we lose. What if the one who conquered death died to free us from those fears? What if he went through hell in order to give us true and everlasting life, unkillable life? And what if he was ours forevermore? No one, no thing could separate us from him. That's what the sacrifice of Christ means to us. And if we drink that in, it's going to enable us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus and imitate his life of sacrificial love. It's going to be hard sometimes. Paul struggled with his thorn in the flesh, remember? The suffering that God gave him. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to him when he said, take it away, take it away, take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in your weakness. You feel inadequate? Okay, it's because I want my power to be put on display in your life. So he said, okay, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, therefore, by the mercies of God, the grace of the sacrifice of Jesus, let's offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. And then we're going to sing now as we close a song called Christ is Mine Forevermore. Remember, the only way that we're going to be empowered to willingly embrace this life of sacrificial love is if we know and savor the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. So that's what we're singing when we sing this song and the sweetness of knowing that Christ is ours forever ever enables us to live out this joyful sacrifice. So let's pray and then we'll sing. Oh Lord, just like the guy who sold all that he had in his joy to buy the field, I pray that we would willingly, joyfully, give everything, live, give our lives as living sacrifices because your sacrifice is so great and so wonderful and so sweet to us that our self-denial is nothing in comparison. 
Help us to see, Lord, that this is how you work. This is how you spread the aroma of Christ. When we likewise walk in sacrificial love, laying our lives down, willingly dying daily that others might live and be blessed and served. So we need your grace, your strength, your sufficient grace to make us adequate for this. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.